Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The Jewish people had three hours of prayer each day. Not necessarily an hour as in 60 minutes, but three daily times that they would go up to the temple to pray. The third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, or 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. So it's three in the afternoon as Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. What's interesting to note is they don't go up for the hour of sacrifice. Sacrifice is already done. Jesus took care of that. But they are going up for the hour of prayer, the afternoon, which is in between the afternoon sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. They are continuing to go up to pray predictably. Predictably. This is what they did. This is what they knew. And though they had both been filled with the Holy Spirit, had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, had seen 3,000 souls in one day baptized, 3,000 souls in one day give their lives to Jesus in faith, they're still going up to temple. Predictably. It's kind of like the format in Acts 2.42. It's predictable. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, plural, praying together. We talked about this on Sunday. It's predictable. It's a format. That's, that's what it really is. But the fruit of the format is often anything but predictable. We set ourselves to the very simple, basic truths of Scripture. We do the very simple, basic things when we gather together. And yeah, it may look the same week in, week out as we gather. But when we go out by the power of the Spirit, filled with the Word of God, the unpredictable begins to happen. The power begins to be experienced. People's lives begin to get changed. Nothing wrong with the predictable, simple format. But it's the fruit that that becomes quite exciting. And if, by the way, if Peter and John had not gone up predictably for the hour of prayer on this particular day, no miracle would have happened. Nothing would have taken place. They wouldn't have been there for it to take place. So there's something, something precious, something special about just the predictability of worship and Bible study and breaking bread and praying together. Because oftentimes in those places God begins to move in His Spirit and do the unexpected. Now, they're going up to the temple. Going up to the temple was an impressive journey. You always went up to Jerusalem as you Bible students know, but you also went up to the temple perched atop Mount Moriah. You'd you'd approach the temple and, and the complex itself was absolutely amazing. Enormous. First you would go up the steps. Imagine a 40-acre planter box, which is basically what Herod designed. A huge box with retaining walls that sat on Mount Moriah such that once the Temple Mount was constructed, once the retaining walls went up, it just looked like a big square temple. The mountain kind of disappears into it. And so he, he built this amazing retaining wall. And then you would go up the steps alongside the wall and into the temple complex. The first thing you would do is enter the court of the Gentiles. The largest court, the outer court. It could hold masses of people, thousands of people. Could be milling about at any given time in the court of the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles alike were uh, allowed to be in there. From the court of the Gentiles, you would then enter into the women's court... 
Now, all the way around the women's court was a three-foot wall. You didn't step over the wall. You didn't hop up on the wall and make your way in that way, for there were gates all the way around the wall. And what's interesting, it was all wide open, so you've got this three-and-a-half-foot wall around the women's court, but you have several gates, large gates, that are attached in different places on the wall. So you would have to go through the gate to get into the women's court. And when I say large gates, I'm talking massive Gates that on either side would have a room or or a small house, if you will. Uh, Interesting what would be held in some of these. If you you look into these things, there might be uh, someone who has pottery in one, someone who makes griddle cakes in one. Of course, you know the selling was going on oftentimes in the court of the Gentiles. But almost like guardhouses on either side, you would see these these houses on either side of the gates. On the eastern side of this half wall that leads from the court of the Gentiles into the women's court, there was a huge ornamental gate, 75 feet high. This gate was so big, it took 20 men to open and close it each day. The Mishnah had a name for it, the Jewish Mishnah, called it the Nicanor Gate. The Nicanor Gate, named for an Alexandrian Jew named Nicanor, who delivered this magnificent gift from Egypt and had it brought up to the temple. It is described as, quote, pure Corinthian brass, which shone like gold. The Bible calls it the beautiful gate. The beautiful gate. And it was spectacular. And again, if you if you read some of the Jewish writings, Talmud and, and the Mishnah that describe this gate, it was absolutely stunning. Josephus tells us this about the beautiful gate. Nine of the gates of the temple were covered with gold and silver, as were also the posts and the lintels. But one gate, and that outside the temple itself, far surpassed the silver and the gold gates in splendor. In other words, it was beautiful. Verse 2, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who are entering into the temple. The Beautiful Gate. It's called the Orios in Greek. That's the Greek word for beautiful, Orios. And what's interesting about the word is it means both beautiful and timely. Beautiful and timely. The Hebrew equivalent is the Na'ah, which means lovely and appropriate. So it was beautiful, it was lovely, it was timely and appropriate. And what happens here on this day, the study that we're going to get into and read tonight, is all of that. It's beautiful. It's timely, it's lovely, and it is appropriate. Think of the contrast here. Peter, John, Peter and John are going up, and the, the people would gaze at this beautiful gate as they pass through, just stunning, shining in the Jerusalem sun. And yet there on the ground is this withered cripple. When I was a kid, that used to freak me out. Anybody with any physical, you know, malady. Now, there's a kid growing up with a cleft lip and cleft palate, so you'd think I'd have a little compassion, right? But anyone, you know, who would be sitting there, if there was someone in a wheelchair, if there, it just when I was a kid, I'm just talking about as a kid, it was just, it kind of freaked me out. And so going into this beautiful gate, this, this splendid gate, there lies a crippled man. And so while all the people are looking at the gate, 
the Lord had his eye on the lame man. Verse 3. When he, that is the lame man, saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Alms are simply gifts of charity. He's begging. Alms, alms for the poor. And so here he is. He's disabled, verse 2 tells us, from his mother's womb. That is, 40 years. You find that out later in the chapter. His entire life of 40 years, this man has been disabled. But that day at the gate called Beautiful, something appropriately timely was about to happen. It's what I would call the beautiful gift. We've already covered two points tonight. Isn't that fantastic? The beautiful gate and the beautiful gift, verse 4. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. That's his motive. That's his thinking. They're going to give me some money or something. Verse 6, But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, of course they were. Now remember who's writing the book of Acts. Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. And he describes this healing with amazing medical verbiage that we don't necessarily pick up unless we're reading it in the Greek. Verse 7, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Raised him up is the Greek egero. Medically, it means to set up and it's the word that a, a physician would use to set a bone. To set a bone that is about to be healed. So Peter's raising him up, but Luke is telling him in this moment as Peter's raising him up, his bones are miraculously setting up. Healing is taking place in a very medical way. The Greek word there for ankle is interesting. It's shveron, shveron, which is where we get our word sphere. It means the ball of the ankle or the ankle bone. So again, it's a word that a physician would use and makes sense that Luke would call this out. It's as if he's writing about this beautiful, timely healing in a medical journal, the way he describes the moment of the miracle. But perhaps you've considered this. If this man is 40 years from his mother's womb, he's been lame his whole entire life, And as the scriptures tell us, he was taken up every day to beg at the beautiful gate. Wouldn't Jesus have seen him? How many times from a young age, a 12-year-old boy there in the temple, he was in the temple at the age of 12, did he not pass through the beautiful gate? Did he not see this crippled man as a boy? In his ministry, how many times do we see him? in Jerusalem, at the temple, teaching, walking about. The whole scene of, of of the woman caught in adultery happens right there in the women's court. 
Of course Jesus saw this guy. And yet, Jesus came, He died, He resurrected, He ascended, and nothing. He never touched this man. No biblical accounting of any interaction whatsoever. This is supposed to be the beautiful timely gate. How is that timely? That this man waits there for 40 years. How could Jesus do that? How could He leave him lame? How could He ignore the infirmity? Maybe you've asked that question in your own life. God, where are You? How can You ignore what's going on with me right now? How can You allow me to continue to suffer? Or or Him? Why do You allow Him to continue to suffer? Or Her? Why do You allow Her to continue to go through hardship? And if you've ever wondered that, I wonder if this guy did. I mean, he's in Jerusalem. He's heard the stories. He knows just up the way, just north of there, another lame guy was healed by Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. Now, I know I'm extrapolating a little bit, but word travels fast. You don't think in the, in the time that one of his buddies didn't come and say, Hey, this guy just like you just got healed by this Jesus. Watch for him. Keep an eye out. And maybe he'll come by and heal you too. And he never did. Why? Because as with the beautiful gate, God's acts of grace and mercy and healing are always appropriately timed. And I have had times in my life where I was wondering, where are you, Lord? Only to experience Him showing up years later in a particular instance or for a particular reason. It is never my timing. It is not God who needs to change His watch to human standard time. It's we. It's our hearts. It's our tickers that need to be set to God's clock. We need a reset by faith. And I can tell you this, every person ever healed, ever saved, ever restored, after any amount of waiting, be it a few months or several years, will altogether one day cry out in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, The Rock! His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. We're all going to sing that. Those who have waited for His mercy, waited for His grace. We're all going to sing that together. Well, how do you know we're all going to sing that? Because we're quoted singing it in Revelation 19. John looking ahead to that scene in heaven, which says, John writes after these things, Revelation 19 verse 1, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Well, who's saying that? We are. All the saints at that time gathered around the throne are praising the Lord and we will say, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. You know what that means? It means everything He did was right. His timing was perfect. His touch was spot on. He never missed a beat. Never missed a a need. All covered, all answered, all dealt with exactly as God by His nature as we would expect from a faithful God. And we're going to praise Him for that. Yeah, well, it's been 10 years for me, Rick. I, I get it. It was 40 years for this crippled man. 40 years. And he's not 60. So it's not like he had 20 good years. He never walked 
He never knew the joy of leaping as he did on this day for the first time. Lame from his mother's womb for 40 years. And on this day, God says, oh, look at that. It's time. And he sends Peter and John with an amazing, amazing healing. Going back, why didn't Jesus heal him? I mean, why didn't he just do it? Because he knew he was going to send Pete and Johnny to do it. He knew the boys were going to do it, and he knew that day was the day it needed to happen. Romans 10.15 says, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful, Orios, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How timely, how appropriate. And that's just what they did. Right on time. Now some might yet argue, well you're saying Jesus made this guy wait for 40 years just to pull off a miracle? Three answers for those who struggle with this whole concept. First, notice the praise of the healed. The praise of the healed. Now we're still at the beautiful gate with the beautiful gift. Okay, So these are now subheadings. I told you, we're going Persian tonight, so we're going to take our time. We're also going to do our own inspection. That's something that you can do if you're um, Iranian. A little political thing for you there. The praise of the healed. What do you mean? I mean, this guy didn't lodge any formal complaints. This guy didn't stand up the moment he was healed and go, Oh, this is awesome. Why did you take 40 years? Where have you been? I've been lying here. Are you kidding me? And you made me wait for this? That's it. That's it. I'm going to the highest court. He didn't. In fact, rather than lodge a formal complaint, he was quite informal in his behavior. He's walking and leaping and praising God, which was not temple etiquette. He's causing a scene, man. Well, let's allow him to. I mean, he's been 40 years lying there. But he's leaping. I, I taught on this back when I was in youth ministry, and I freaked out our entire youth group. We had a short stage in our, uh, in our large youth room in Southern California, and the worship band mostly would be on the stage. We had a piano that was just down off the stage, but it sat about that much higher than the stage itself. And so when I read, he was walking and leaping and praising God, I jumped up onto the piano. Shouting hallelujah. And the kids thought I was nuts. I mean, I I wish I had a camera in that moment because they were all just like... They were terrified. You know, he's jumping, he's on the piano. What's Rick doing? Look, this guy is leaping in the temple. This guy is drawing all kinds of attention. He's not even thinking about it. He's just thrilled beyond belief. Leaping like a kid on a pogo stick. You know, that's the problem with healed people. You really have to train them on proper religious propriety. No, you really do. you got to teach them how to settle down. You know, those lost people, when they get saved, they come in and they're all excited. We're like, no, that's not really how we do things here. We stand at the appropriate time. We make sure we sit. You know when to sit. Pastor Rick puts down his guitar. 
He's just so thrilled to be healed. I think we could learn a few things from this man. I'm not talking about getting all out of control, but man, you know what? It's okay to be excited about your salvation. It is okay to praise God aloud for your healing. And whether like Tim Hawkins says, you have your hands here, here, or here, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) We praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because we are a healed people. We are a saved people. And we like this guy are a people that without Jesus, you know what Peter said? You were once a people who had no mercy. Now you have mercy. It's marvelous. Is there a worshipful word for what the man is doing? And there actually is. The word is exult. Exult. You know the word exult? I exult in thee, O God. Someone might say, you know what exult means? It means to jump. It means to leap. This guy was literally exulting in the Lord. Psalm 9 verse 1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord. With all my heart I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. Picture David dancing before the Lord. I'll exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. See, that's what the healed do. That's what those who have been saved do. And the key, listen, the key to an exultant heart is getting in sync with God's appropriate timing. Which may not be ours. In fact, oftentimes, my clock is way off from God's divine timing. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail... And the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will leap for joy in the Lord, he says. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. Do you see what deer hinds do? We have them all over the place right now. You've probably seen them all over the island. I mean, it's nuts. We've got to do some hunting, guys. They're everywhere. And there's a whole little family that lives on my property, and they're eating the only diesel landscaping I have. I'm like, go to the forest. There's all kinds of stuff you can eat. But no, they come right to the front. And there are these two little Bambi babies. They still have their spots. Tiny little little guys. And they're always out at our... Cheryl's got a bird feeder out front. She puts bird seed in it. Well, they think it's deer seed, and so they come and they eat. But if I pull up in the car or I walk out the front door leaving uh, in the morning to come to the office, they bolt. And I know what it looks like for a hind to go jumping because that's what I see as they leave. They're hind. Sorry. They, they jump and they leap. And Habakkuk the prophet says, He has made my feet like that. And he makes me to walk on the high places. And the context for these hind feet on high places kind of joyful, exulting worship, the context is the fig tree doesn't work, the vines are not yielding, the olive is gone, the flock is cut off, the cattle are gone, you got nothing. And yet, I will leap and I will praise the Lord. Well, how can you do that, Habakkuk? Because I'm in sync with the appropriate, beautiful timing of the Lord. And that's the kind of dance we see here in Mr. Lame No More. He's, he's excited. Now, another thought to help get the heart in sync. Secondly, the patience of the healer. I mean, there's the praise of the healed. 
Once you're healed, you're not thinking about all the time you waited to be healed. You're just glad you're healed. But there's also the patience of the healer. Let me ask you this question. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to walk by this man in this life? To leave him crippled? If you think Jesus did that callously, you do not know the compassion of Christ. That He would pass this man and see him and so many others in Jerusalem... In the Galilee, in Judea, who were sick and infirm, and he would have to pass right on by. Why? Because he didn't come to heal. He came to save. And so each healing performed by Jesus was very specific and very intentional. But Jesus is so patient. He always sees the big picture. Always looks beyond to places that we can't see. And the patience of Christ always yields a far greater healing than I can possibly imagine. You see, Jesus could have just healed this man. But because he was patient, because he waited and sent Peter and John to do it later, as we will see in a few minutes, thousands will get saved. He could have healed the man during his ministry. Quickly. And then as he did with all of the healings, just disappeared. And nothing else would have happened. But he waits. The patience of the healer. Second Thessalonians 3.5 May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. The steadfastness of Christ means He does not heal on your schedule or mine. He is patient. So if you're waiting for some kind of response from the Lord in your life, understand He probably is waiting too. He's patient, so you be patient. And on this day, the steadfastness of Christ opened the beautiful gate for a beautiful gift of healing. And again, something far greater. And it's the third thing to recognize as we consider God's slow moving sometimes, as as we consider His patience. Number three, the purpose of the healer. The purpose of the healer. My purpose? Getting healed. My purpose? No more pain. My purpose? Everything going my way. His purpose? Much bigger. Jesus said in Matthew 16.4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it. Except for the sign of Jonah, and he left them and went away. Now, you know when Jesus said this? He had already performed dozens of miracles. He had already shown himself by many, many signs. But Jesus knows something. The signs, the miracles, the healings are not the end in and of themselves. They are never the point. I've told you before, you can heal someone, they're still going to die. You can give a man his legs, he's still going to see the grave. You can give someone everything in life that they hope for and wish for, and death is still imminent unless Jesus comes and takes us home first. But it's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes judgment, so that's pretty much in the cards unless he happens to come. Miracles, again, are never an end unto themselves. The far greater purpose of Jesus for healing on this day was, number three in the big overall, the beautiful gospel. Here at the beautiful gate, the beautiful gift is given, and we hear Peter bust out with the beautiful gospel, verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety 
we had made him walk. Now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. I'll just quickly point out, that word servant is going to be used three times in Acts 3 and 4. I'm not going to tell you why that's significant until next week. But the word servant applied to Christ. Some of your translations say child. We'll come back to that. He's glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, which was a title for Messiah, and asked for a murderer to be granted you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, A fact to which we are witnesses, verse 16, and on the basis of faith in His name, that is Jesus' name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through Him, through Jesus, has given Him, the lame man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. What Peter says here is there is a perfectly logical explanation for this fantastic, amazing healing that you all are witnesses of. What's that, Peter? Faith. This, now buckle up, was a faith healing. This was a faith healing. But you need to understand something. It was not the faith of the crippled man. He didn't have any faith. He wanted money. Alms, alms for the poor... Look at us, Peter says, and he goes like this. What do you have for me? You know, a few shekels? A banana? I'm kind of hungry. It's lunchtime. It's past that. What do you have? He's seeking to get something. He has no faith. But Peter here says, this came by faith. This guy's asking for alms. He gets touched by the Almighty. (laughs) We'll play on words there. But he doesn't have faith. Peter says... This happened on the basis of faith in the name of Jesus. Fact, nearly every healing in the book of Acts is of non-believers. Which is really interesting to me. In fact, it kind of throws a wrench into the the theology of some. The healing was mostly of non-believers. Of course, they became believers rather quickly. But they didn't have faith through which to be healed Faith healing, per se, is not supported in the book of Acts. Not the way it's often described or or touted in the church today. That if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. And if you don't, well, you didn't have enough faith. If you just believe enough, you too can experience these gifts. But if you don't have the gifts, you obviously just don't have the faith that I do. If you were just right enough with God, He would heal you in an instant, but you obviously are not right with God. And you know what the church sounds like when we say things like that? The friends of Job. This is your fault, man. You just need to believe a little more. You must have done something wrong. Come on. This faith was a faith that belonged to Peter and John. It was their faith. And by the way, it wasn't even quite totally their faith. It was a faith given to them. 
In the moment, I absolutely believe Peter received a gift of faith. The gift of faith. What are you talking about? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Interesting, faith and healing are in the same verse as a gift of the Spirit. Now, we all come to Jesus by faith in God's grace. We're saved by faith. So faith is something that that becomes generated in us and that we act out. Faith is also a gift. And in this moment, Peter is given the spiritual gift of faith and healing simultaneously. Think about how nutty this would be if you were Peter and John. You're walking in and the guy asks for alms and you look down and suddenly you realize... I don't have any money for him, but I can heal him. Stand up! What if he hadn't? <laughs> See, that's what a lot of us in our modern you know, intellectual world would think. Well, I'd love to raise him up, but what if I raise him up and he just falls down? That would be embarrassing and not real good for the gospel. Better just pass on by. Now, Peter suddenly has a, an additional filling, and I'll prove this to you in a minute, an additional filling of the Holy Spirit. He received the Spirit of Christ, John 20, verse 22. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And now here he is walking in the temple, and we have another outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Peter. He has faith, and he begins now to heal. By faith. A faith that is greater than Peter's faith, I'm absolutely convinced. Kind of like what Jesus said to him when Peter blurted out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter. You didn't figure this one out on your own. That's my translation. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God gave you the faith to say this, Peter. Well, God gave Peter the faith here to reach out and raise this guy up. Understand this. Peter functioned under the supernatural, unshakable confidence that as he took this man's hand and raised him, he would walk. Peter just believed it. But the healing of God, my friends, is always intentional. Always intentional. He never heals on a whim. He doesn't just heal for the fun of it. For God, it is not a circus sideshow. There is always reason behind what the Father does. And all of this happened so that the gospel could be preached that day in the temple. Verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. You know what the prophets have to say about this, Peter says to the all-Jewish, primarily Jewish audience. You've read the prophets. You know those bizarre verses, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that talk about the suffering of of this Messiah, of the servant of the Lord. He did it. Fulfilled, done. But I find it interesting here that in verse 17, Peter makes this statement. I know you acted in ignorance. I'm so glad he said that. that. That's cool to me. Because Peter's not just blasting through a sermon and hammering away. He pauses long enough to go, look, look, I get it. You didn't know. I'm not blaming you for 
doing something that you knew was, was wrong. You, you were part of something you didn't know. The Romans who crucified Him, they didn't know either. This got by an awful lot of people. And Peter now, is, he's reaching out compassionately to his people, the men of Israel, and recognizing that most, most were ignorant of what took place at the crucifixion. They really didn't know. Of course, if you've studied the crucifixion, you know Jesus already proclaimed that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Most non-believers don't know what they're doing. I don't, I don't mean that as an offense like they're walking around clueless wonders. I mean they really don't know. And especially in our culture today, in fact, I believe more than at any time in American history, people are walking around ignorant of the truth of the gospel. They really don't know. 30 or 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we could have said, you've heard this in Sunday school, you're just rejecting it. Nowadays, I run into more people who never went to church. They don't know the stories. They hear things, mostly that Christians are judgmental bigots, but they don't know the truth of the gospel. They don't know the grace of God. They don't know the love of Jesus. Well, Paul tells us in this world, in this kind of scenario, the scenario that we find ourselves in in the last days, Colossians 4, 5, he says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. You want to be well-timed and appropriate. You want to be beautiful in the way you approach people. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. In other words, let's temper our testimony. Do not, do not water down the Word of God. Do not back away from the truth. But as you present truth to people, remember that they are not coming from the same place you are. If you're talking to a non-believer, don't expect things out of a non-believer that you would expect out of a believer. Wait, you're, you're telling me that from here you're going to go and, and smoke pot with your friends? What is wrong with you? They don't know. You're telling me that you're happy about the Supreme Court decision? You're sick. They don't know. Don't treat a non-believer the way you would treat a believer. You look at someone who doesn't believe, who doesn't have that understanding, you season your speech with grace. You speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 Because, and here's the real issue, ignorance is an invalid excuse. We've got to bring grace because ignorance is not going to save anybody. You understand what I'm saying? That we need to be thinking in terms of talking to someone who doesn't believe in such a way that they can come to faith, that they can see the grace, that they can understand that God is good and loves them and desires to save them. we got to approach it that way because their ignorance will not hold up in the court of God. Jesus said in John 15.22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. I believe we can stretch that out in the big picture. 
If Jesus had never come in the world, if God had never put on flesh to dwell among us, well, then we wouldn't know any better. But He did. He did come. And ignorance is no excuse. Paul said in Romans 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Ignorance is never an excuse. And prophecy does not yield to ignorance. Prophecy is always fulfilled. Prophecy always comes to pass, whether someone realizes it's what's happening or not. And all of the Jews gathered there in the court of women listening to Peter had no idea that the very prophecies they had studied had been fulfilled. Prophecy just kept right on going. Verse 19. Therefore, Peter says... Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away like a server. Oh, I'm sorry, no. Delete that. Can't believe that slipped out. Wow. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins, your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Listen, this is amazing. He enters into what I would call the three R's of repentance. Refreshing, return, and restoration. And the first one is simply refreshing. Times of refreshing. Repent that times of refreshing can come. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but just recently we talked about repentance. That repentance is not turning from sin, right? It's turning to Jesus. The true repentance is not turning from what you've done, but to the one who can save you. Because if all you do is turn from what you have done, turn from your sin, you will burn out, man. Because it is really hard to turn from sin and just keep staying away from it. The whole just say no campaign was a massive failure. Because you can't just say no to something. You have to say yes to something else or someone else. In this case, Jesus. So repentance is a turning, but it's turning to Jesus that times of refreshing may come. I love the word refreshing here. Anapsuxis. Anapsuxis in the Greek. And it literally means to make cool when overheated. Repent and chill. Repent and cool off. Repent and take the nesty plunge. How many people remember the nesty plunge? What a great, what a brilliant advertising campaign. You can see it on YouTube. I went back and looked. July of 1976, it debuted. The nesty plunge. It's this goofy 1970s song about this guy. He's working out on a road and he's sweaty and he's messy. He's spreading tar. And the song says something about it. I'm out on Highway 17 and it's 111 degrees outside. And, and then he hears this picture of Nesty being stirred with the ice. You know, the clink, 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 clink. And he just sees it and goes rushing over to it and grabs it. Takes the big swig and you know the rest. <sighs> Splash into the swimming pool. Next thing you know, 1976, that summer, we were all taking the Nestea Plunge. I had a swimming pool. My parents did in in our backyard growing up. I did the Nestea Plunge right into our pool. Dad was a little upset with me for all that tea in the water, but you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? 
Do you, do you think in those terms when you think about repentance? Do you think about how refreshing it is? If you describe repentance to somebody, you know what, what the world hears when you say repent? Turn or burn. And all they hear is the heat. But the very description of repentance is it's refreshing. Man, it's refreshing. And we who have repented understand that. There's nothing like repenting because it all gets out. It's done. I'm free. I'm clear. I'm cool. I'm refreshed in the Lord. The Bible describes repentance that way. Refreshing, cooling, thirst, quenching. And that's what happens when we turn to the Lord. He refreshes us. If we just turn from sin, it's laborious. It'll overheat you. But Peter said the Lord Himself, He is refreshment. Peter then goes from the times of refreshing to the second hour of repentance, the promise of return. And note to whom the return is promised. Verse 20. And that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. You who? Who's the you? Who's He talking to here? But who are they? The Jewish Israel. Israel. It's talking to Jews. Uh, we're still several chapters away from Peter even cluing in that this gospel is going to go beyond the Jewish people. Right now, all he knows is that it's, it's a Jewish thing. And it was. A promise to Israel. The times of refreshing. And note that Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Mashiach, appointed for you, Israel. This is your Messiah we're talking about. This is the Messiah of the Jewish people. God says in Psalm 2 verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Romans 1.16, Paul made the comment, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Don't forget that. It is not you who supports the root, but it is the root that supports you. Paul in Romans 11 is talking about the root is Israel, and Israel supports us. We draw from our Hebrew heritage, if I can say that, spiritually, grafted in to the promise that was originally for the Jewish people, and as we talked about, will again be to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel itself. Verse 21, continuing. Verse 21 now says, Whom heaven must receive, still talking about Jesus, until the period of restoration, note this, of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. The third R of repentance, the period of restoration. Repentance is about refreshing. Okay, Repentance is about, what was the second one? Return. It is about the return of Christ that my very repentance becomes part of the process, part of the, of the heading toward the return of Jesus that is promised to Israel. And now my repentance, hey, it's part of the period of restoration. The period of restoration. All the prophets talked about this. We went through all the prophets, didn't we? So you know the restoration promise. This is a direct reference to the Davidic kingdom of Israel. That period of restoration, I told you Acts is an eschatological book. This is a book that speaks of the end times. This is a book that looks forward to 
And at the very beginning, Peter and the apostles, there's like, they're like, is now the time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, you remember, remember Jesus saying, oh, you guys are idiots. No, I'm through with the Jew. We're doing a whole new thing now. No, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed. It's a done deal. This restoration. And so here, Peter repeats it again. Speaking of the Messianic kingdom promised to Israel here on the earth, and it's coming, man. It's coming. Verse 22. Moses said, Peter's still preaching, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet... Who's that prophet? Jesus. It's always the right answer, by the way. If you're never sure, just say Jesus. you got like a 99% chance of being right. Okay. So he says, It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Now note this. Verse 23 sounds harsh. Of course, he's talking to Israel who understand the harsher language, the harsher discipline of the Lord. But what he says is, every soul that does not heed that prophet, we can translate, every soul that does not heed Yeshua, Jesus, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. What did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So you either come to the Father through Jesus, that's the grace perspective, or you will be utterly destroyed because you rejected Jesus, the only way to the Father. Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18. He refers back to that prophecy of Moses about the prophet who is Jesus. But note also that Peter doesn't say these days are here. He doesn't say these days are here. He says, repent and return so that these days can come. That our repentance, our returning, Israel's repentance, get this, the nation of Israel's returning to the Lord will proceed these days. Do this so that these days can come. Repent, Israel, so that He can come. Again, Acts is an eschatological book. And he's talking here about the coming kingdom. The lame man waited 40 years. God has waited so far 2,000. Who's more patient? The Lord is still waiting to bring His kingdom. But Peter says, and you know the verse well, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why He hasn't come yet. That's why he's waiting. That's why he made this man wait 40 years so that many could come to repentance at the appropriate and beautiful time. Verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 22.18 For you first God raised up His servant, there's a second use of that, His servant, and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. 